I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. It's Monday, January 17th, 2022, the 362nd day of dystopia. Truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Fewer people are convinced by the story each day as they begin to see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. The time for allowing them to make us feel like strangers in our own country is over. We are Americans. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. This is the end game. Let's get right into it. On Saturday night, President Donald Trump held another massive rally, this time in Florence, Arizona. They estimated the crowd was around 55,000 people. Don't know if that's accurate or not, but there were a whole lot of people. There was a line of cars stretching miles down the road on the way in. And there were reportedly thousands of people who could not actually get into the rally venue area because they had hit their capacity. So there is still a ton of support for Donald Trump in Arizona. And if you recall, when Joe Biden and Kamala Harris went to do an appearance in Arizona during the 2020 campaign, literally zero people showed up. I think Joe Biden actually had his biggest crowd of the last two plus years last week in Georgia for his race baiting election takeover speech. And that was maybe a couple hundred, and it only happened because they included local colleges and got the students to show up, probably by lying to them and telling them that it was a historically relevant speech when, of course, it wasn't. The speech has been mostly panned for how dishonest and divisive it was. And he gave the speech in support of the what they call the voting rights legislation, which seems to have, for now at least, completely failed. So I don't see how anyone could imagine that this speech will be remembered as anything other than another progressively lower low point for an administration that cannot stop having new low points. And the media did what they normally do, which is to ignore the speech and then go out on the Sunday morning shows and repeat again and again and again how Trump was spreading his big lie. And there's a funny clip of Brian Stelter actually bragging about how the legacy media fully ignores Donald Trump's speeches. He has determined for himself and his audience, of course, that the best possible strategy for all of them to make the Trump thing go away is to just simply ignore it. It's not really happening if you can't see it. 
That is how little respect they have for their audience. They do not expect their audience to be able to watch something the other side does and place it in a proper context or understand whether or not what the speaker is saying is true. I watch all of Joe Biden's speeches, and most of the time it's not that much fun. Although at this point, I've begun to find them hilarious because there are so many pathetic, dishonest moments that the reaction should be humor. It's not worth getting mad at. It's some old, crazy, demented pervert who was mentored in politics by a Klansman spouting off about things that don't make any sense. And every time Joe Biden shows up in public, his base gets smaller. And I enjoy knowing that and I enjoy watching that. It's strange that those on the other side don't take similar enjoyment in watching Trump speeches, but they can't watch them because if they did watch them, they might think, oh, well, the media didn't tell me about that. I don't know how to respond to that. Well, what if that's true? They have no frame of reference. It's only a repetition of the slogans. The big lie, the big lie, the big lie. And one of the funny things is how they often talk about how Trump supporters, the people who might watch a rally or attend a rally, are somehow in a cult. And that's always been laughable because we don't take our cues from Donald Trump. We have opinions and beliefs and a set of facts we base those opinions and beliefs on. And when Donald Trump is aligned with our opinions and our beliefs, then we like him and we like what he's saying. And when he's not, we doubt him and we question him and we wonder why he's saying what he's saying. For example, I've talked about the vaccines and Trump's stance on the vaccines many times. He always touts the success of Operation Warp Speed. And people take that to mean that he thinks everyone should get vaccinated and he is clueless or maybe worse, doesn't care about the devastating effects that the mass vaccination campaign is causing. And I don't think that's true. I've explained that on the podcast before. But when Trump talks about that stuff, we don't think, oh, yeah, he's right. We better say it, too. We think, oh, man, I wish Trump wouldn't say that. I wonder why he is saying that. You know how normal people react. Joe Biden, on the other hand, goes down to Georgia and he declares that anyone who doesn't agree with the full takeover of state election processes by the federal government in direct opposition to what the Constitution says must now be supported and repeated. I can only imagine that if I was still on legacy social media and still living in Hollywood, I would probably be seeing a string of posts that amplify his message that anyone who doesn't agree with the election takeover is just like Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis, even though most of those people would have no idea who either of those men were and would not realize that those men are, in fact, Democrats and would not realize that Joe Biden himself was mentored in politics by a former Grand Klegel and exalted Cyclops of the Klan, 
Robert Byrd, and they wouldn't recognize the fact that Joe Biden wrote the damn bill when talking about the 94 crime bill. And they wouldn't realize that Joe Biden isn't the only one in his party who can be described that way. And they wouldn't realize that the parties just simply swapped racial animus when the Civil Rights Act was signed into law by Lyndon B. Johnson. And on the signing of that law, he said, this will have those N-words voting Democrat for the next 200 years. And they won't recognize the fact that he only passed it after Democrats filibustered that law. They will just take whatever Joe Biden has said and repeat it. And the crazy part, the crazy part is that they will say they don't like Joe Biden. Really? Well, if you don't like him, why is it that you have to support every single thing he says and does? And why do you have to tell us that somehow it's actually right? You have a very complex and convoluted argument about how the filibuster in certain cases is a relic of Jim Crow. But in other cases, it is the last remaining tool to stop the takeover of white supremacy from the other side. It's like they're able to use the old switcheroo whenever it suits them. On Friday last week, Rasmussen published a poll where they surveyed Democrats about their support for some different mitigation strategies, let's call them, surrounding the coronavirus. And they published some key takeaways. They noted that 59% of Democrats support government forcing Americans to remain confined in their homes if they refuse the COVID vaccine. Okay, so nearly six in 10 Democrats want you to be locked in your home for refusing to participate in the actually very dangerous medical experiment that has no positive benefit whatsoever. And we can see that in the world as more and more coronavirus cases pop up every time there's another round of shots because the vaccines are creating new variants. 78% of Democrats support President Biden's vaccine mandate for businesses with more than 100 employees. Well, I guess that doesn't matter because the Supreme Court doesn't. So sorry, 78% of Democrats, 55% of Democrats Support fining Americans who choose not to take part in the medical experiment. 48% of Democrats say the government should fine or imprison Americans who publicly question the efficacy of COVID vaccines. You got that? Half of Democrats, basically, think that the government should be taking people's property or throwing them in prison for publicly questioning the science. The extreme censorship isn't enough. They need to take people's property or imprison them for posting online facts. By the way, often facts that even the CDC admits that dispute their narrative about the COVID vaccines. Not because they're wrong, but because they encourage non-compliance. Now, that is a very, very dangerous idea, the kind that could only be supported by people who would have been in the exact same position, ethically speaking, 
if they were in Germany during World War Two, what would these people have been doing? Who would they have aligned themselves with? It's not hard to see. They already have the support of all of the most powerful institutions in the world who will happily censor for them on their behalf whenever they ask. And that's not enough because they still can see that their ideas are being exposed and that people aren't believing them. Their ideas don't work when they are put out into the light against competing information, which is why, for instance, people like Brian Stelter and Jake Tapper prefer to just say big lie over and over and over again. If they went on television and discussed the actual details of election fraud, if they were truthful in their reporting about audits and court cases and what is happening around the nation in terms of election integrity, no one would believe the central narrative. Censorship is what allows them to still keep any of this going. If we were in a true free market of information, no one on that side would believe any of this crap, except for these absolute extremists who would have had these same exact views in World War II Germany. 47% of Democrats support the government tracking the unvaccinated to ensure they are quarantined or socially distant. You got that? They think it's a good idea to be able to track everybody's movement to make sure that everybody is following the rules, which they imagine is the same thing as following the science. They somehow still believe that all of the mitigation rules that they follow that were put in place against the science and the proof is everywhere that that's true, not only didn't fail but we're all resounding successes and that what we need to do going forward is more of that. The real world proof is all around them. Masks don't work. Even the CDC admits it now. They're trying to switch the narrative over to say everybody needs N95 masks because they'll pretend that that works, but it won't work because people aren't going to wear them properly. Most people aren't going to wear them at all. And there is still zero proof that masking healthy people can somehow prevent viral spread in communities. It's just not there. And so rather than saying simply that cloth masks don't work and they don't work, they're going to say that cloth masks don't work as well as this other thing. But they all still sort of somehow kind of work. And it's better to be safe than sorry. It's better to allow Antifa rioters that are certainly just around the bend to be able to cover their faces when they're out in cities committing crimes. It's really important. And so we have to still support masking sort of. More than one quarter of Democrats say parents should lose custody of their children if they refuse the COVID vaccine. Okay. One quarter of Democrats believe that the state should be able to come in and take away your kids if you have decided not to join the medical experiment. And I imagine that they would extend that to their kids as well. But just last week, we discussed how only 17% of eligible children in America have had the shot. That's a whole lot of kids that they want the state to take away. 
And what would they do with those kids? Oh, yeah, that's right. Some of the states are building camps. They could just go to the camps. They'll go to the quarantine camps like they have in Australia. And I'm sure that the very capable, very legitimate Biden administration would take such good care of the unvaccinated children. I guarantee they wouldn't immediately inject those kids with the experimental gene therapy against their will and the will of their parents. They would never do that. And they also wouldn't enclose them in small plastic cages and give them aluminum foil as blankets like they did with those kids down at the border that they care so much about. And hey, if some kids die while getting the shot or if they just lose some kids altogether, well, These good Democrats know where to place the blame on those parents who wouldn't get vaccinated. Now, these numbers have freaked a lot of people out. And I understand that because this stuff is just straight up evil. And you don't like to hear that so many people support evil of this variety with good reason. But we have to maintain some perspective about these polls. Okay, first off, these are only Democrats being polled. Now, we traditionally think of that group of people as much larger than it actually is at this point. Whenever we are looking at polling data right now, we have to keep in mind that the number of people who self-identify as Democrats is shrinking. Okay, people are walking away from that movement. Joe Biden did not get anywhere near 81 million votes in November of 2020. I would be surprised if he got more than 55 million votes, but that remains to be seen in terms of the exact numbers. I don't believe that the election of 2020 that saw Trump gain 12 million votes over his total in 2016 somehow just generated those 12 million new voters and the Democrats had just as many, but no, they had 15 million more. There's no reason whatsoever to believe that Democrats had anything approaching the level of turnout that could possibly get them to 81 million votes. There's no reason to believe that they had the level of turnout that could get them anywhere near 70 million votes. But what they did do was change enough rules, introduce enough mail-in ballots, and then introduce the drop boxes where those ballots could be harvested and turned in with no chain of custody, no date or time that proved they were actually in by the end of election day when all the votes are supposed to be in. No postmark to say, yes, this voter did send that on November 2nd, even though we got it on November 5th. There is none of that. We know how the steal happened. So the number of Democrats that we already assumed to be out in the real world was in actuality nowhere close to the number of Democrats we are told are out in the real world. Beyond that, Joe Biden's fake administration has had the worst year in presidential history, just about. I can't think of a worse one. Maybe there were. I'm not a historian. If someone has a wonderful example, please send it my way. But he's reaching historically low numbers with all sorts of different groups. 
He's under 30% with independents. He's under 30% with Hispanics. He's under 30% with young voters. If Joe Biden got 81 million votes, how do we imagine he did it? Black support is moving toward the America first side. Hispanic support is moving dramatically to the America first side. Perhaps Democrats are so concerned with voter ID because their entire constituency is made out of imaginary people who cannot prove that they are eligible to vote. And so the number of people who identify as Democrats is shrinking dramatically. And I'm about to back that up for you in just a second. But with that shift in mind, looking at these numbers over time, when a polling company sets out to do one of these polls, they are talking to people who self-identify as Democrat, Independent or Republican, and they will weight their polling results. They want a certain number of Democrats, a certain number of independents and a certain number of Republicans that they believe will be reflective of the American public as a whole. OK, so to reach that number, they need to find enough people who identify as Democrat. If that number is shrinking then it is consolidating around continuously more extreme views. So whatever pool of self-identified Democrats they could be pulling these respondents from a year ago, that pool of self-identifying Democrats has gotten smaller. And inside the pool that remains are people who hold more and more extreme views on that side. So now that's the new pool that they are pulling respondents from, which means you can expect the average answer from that pool of self-identifying Democrats to be continuously more extreme when represented in these polls. And that is how Joe Biden's support among Democrats stays so high. There are fewer Democrats. The ones who remain are the ones who support Joe Biden. Similarly, with re these sorts of responses in the Rasmussen poll, it's the same effect taking place. The views inside the pool of self-identifying Democrats has also gotten more extreme. So while we think just casually that we're talking about something around half the country and that half of that half has these utterly insane and evil beliefs, it's actually much, much smaller than that. And it continues getting smaller every day. And so here's some of that proof. This is from Gallup. This is uh, published this morning. The author is Jeffrey M. Jones. U.S. political party preferences shifted greatly during 2021. On average, Americans' political party preferences in 2021 looked similar to prior years, with slightly more U.S. adults identifying as Democrats or leaning Democrat, 46%, then identified as Republicans or leaned Republican, 43%. However, the general stability for the full year average obscures a dramatic shift over the course of 2021 from a nine percentage point Democrat advantage in the first quarter to a rare five point Republican edge in the fourth quarter. That is an enormous shift. That is a 14 point swing. That's one seventh of the electorate has shifted in our direction, not only in their views, but in their political affiliations. Again, 
the number of people who self-identify as Democrat or Democrat-leaning has shrunk dramatically. These results are based on aggregated data from all U.S. Gallup telephone surveys in 2021, which included interviews with more than 12,000 randomly sampled U.S. adults. Gallup asks all Americans at interviews whether they identify politically as a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent. Independents are then asked whether they lean more toward the Republican or Democrat party. The combined percentage of party identifiers and leaners gives a measure of the relative strength of the two parties politically. Both the nine-point Democratic advantage in the first quarter and the five-point Republican edge in the fourth quarter are among the largest Gallup has measured for each party in any quarter since it began regularly measuring party identification and leaning in 1991. The Democrat lead in the first quarter was the largest for the party since the fourth quarter of 2012, when Democrats also had a nine-point advantage. Democrats held larger double-digit advantages in isolated quarters between 1992 and 1999 and nearly continuously between mid-2006 and early 2009. The GOP has held as much as a five-point advantage in a total of only four quarters since 1991. The Republicans last held a five-point advantage in party identification and leaning in early 1995 after winning control of the House of Representatives for the first time since the 1950s. Republicans had a larger advantage only in the first quarter of 1991 after the U.S. victory in the Persian Gulf led by then-President George H.W. Bush. So it has been 26 years since this large a portion of the American electorate has identified as Republican or Republican leaning. And this has occurred just following the election of the very real president who got the most votes of all time by far. Does that make any sense to anyone? Continuing with the Gallup article. Shifting party preferences in 2021 are likely tied to changes in popularity of the two men who served as president during the year. Republican Donald Trump finished out his single term in January after being defeated in the 2020 election with a 34 percent job approval rating, the lowest of his term. His popularity fell more than 10 points from Election Day 2020 as the country's COVID-19 infections and deaths reached then record highs. He refused to acknowledge the result of the election and his supporters rioted at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, in an attempt to prevent Congress from counting the 2020 Electoral College votes. I mean, yes, you have to just accept the propaganda. It's going to be everywhere. Democrat Joe Biden enjoyed relatively high ratings after taking office on January 20th, and his approval stayed high through the early summer as COVID-19 infections dramatically decreased after millions of Americans got vaccinated against the disease. A summer surge of infections. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if they put the after millions of Americans got vaccinated against the disease where it actually belongs? Try this sentence on for size. A summer surge of infections tied to the Delta variant after millions of Americans got vaccinated against the disease. <laughs> Doesn't that make more sense? That is a much more accurate way to state what actually happened. Gallup, take a note. A summer surge of infections tied to the Delta variant of the coronavirus made it clear the pandemic was not over in the U.S. and Biden's approval ratings began to sag. Later, the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan caused Biden's ratings to fall further into the low 40s. His ratings remain low as the U.S. battles rising inflation and yet another surge of COVID-19 infections tied to the Omicron variant of the virus. 
oh, how come you didn't mention all the other things that Biden is doing terribly and that the American public is waking up to? With Trump's approval rating at a low point and Biden relatively popular in the first quarter, 49% of Americans identified as Democrats or lean Democratic, compared with 40% who were Republicans or Republican leaners. In the second quarter, Democratic affiliation stayed high while Republican affiliation began to recover, increasing to 43%. The third quarter saw a decline in Democratic identification and leaning from 49 to 45% as Biden's ratings began to falter, while there was no meaningful change in Republican affiliation. In the fourth quarter, party support flipped as Republicans made gains from 44% to 47%, and Democratic affiliation fell from 45 to 42%. These fourth quarter shifts coincided with strong GOP performances in 2021 elections, including a Republican victory in the Virginia gubernatorial election and a near upset of the Democratic incumbent governor in New Jersey. Biden won both states by double digits in the 2020 election. And don't worry, Gallup, there was definitely no fraud whatsoever in the Virginia and New Jersey elections, except there was. The GOP advantage may be starting to ease, however, as Gallup's latest monthly estimate from December showed the two parties about even 46% Republican leaning and 44% Democratic leaning. They go on to note that around 42% of the country identifies as independent. And then, of course, they separate out the leaners on either side when they're compiling the numbers that I've just gone through. So let's jump down to the bottom line. The year 2021 was an eventful one in politics after a similarly eventful 2020 that also saw major shifts in party preferences. In early 2021, Democratic strength reached levels not seen in nearly a decade. By the third quarter, those Democratic gains evaporated as Biden's job approval declined. The political winds continued to become more favorable to Republicans in the fourth quarter, giving the GOP an advantage over Democrats larger than any they had achieved in more than 25 years. The final monthly survey of 2021 showed the parties at roughly even strength, although that still represents a departure from the historical norm of the Democratic Party having at least a slight advantage in party affiliation. With control of the House of Representatives and Senate at stake in this year's midterm elections, party preferences will be a key indicator of which party will be better positioned to gain majorities in the next session of Congress. And what a genius insight from Gallup there. Switching subjects completely, this is from CNBC on Friday afternoon. Google Facebook CEOs oversaw illegal ad auction deal that gave Facebook an advantage, states allege. This is Laura Finer in CNBC. Chief executives of Google and Facebook personally oversaw an illegal 2018 deal that advantaged Facebook on Google's ad auctions. A group of state attorneys general led by Texas allege in an amended antitrust complaint against Google on Friday. Facebook, recently renamed Meta, is not listed as a defendant in the complaint. The complaint also alleges Google manipulated its ad pricing tiers under a secret program called Project Bernanke that removed second place bids on ad auctions. It allowed Google to pocket part of the difference between first and third place bids while also harming publishers that rely on ad revenue and who could have made more from higher bids. Under the agreement with Facebook, Google and Facebook illegally collaborated to decrease prices paid to publishers, cut out rival ad networks, and manipulate ad auctions operated by publishers, the complaint says. The new filing shows just how far up the arrangement alleged in earlier filings went. Facebook chief operating officer Sheryl Sandberg, whose name is redacted in the complaint, called the agreement 
quote, a big deal strategically, end quote, in an email including Mark Zuckerberg, whose name was also redacted. Sandberg and Google CEO Sundar Pichai signed off on the deal's terms, the states allege, noting Sandberg was previously a high-ranking executive in Google's advertising business. Sandberg's sign-off was earlier reported by the Wall Street Journal. According to the third amended complaint in the case, Google made the deal after Facebook announced a move that would help publishers and advertisers get around Google-imposed fees for advertising through its services. The states allege Google feared a long-term threat to its ad server monopoly if enough buyers were able to bypass its fees. An internal Facebook document quoted in the complaint allegedly said that partnering with Google would, quote, be relatively cheap compared to build, buy, and compete in zero-sum ad tech game, end quote. Google allegedly codenamed the arrangement Jedi Blue, referencing Facebook's blue logo. The group of 16 states in Puerto Rico alleged that this and other actions Google took in the online advertising space sought to illegally preserve its monopoly power, violating the Sherman Antitrust Act. Google has previously strongly rejected the claims in the Texas-led lawsuit, with Director of Economic Policy Adam Cohen calling it in a 2021 blog post a, quote, misleading attack. A Google spokesperson said Friday that the company would file a motion to dismiss next week and said that the case remains, quote, full of inaccuracies and lacks legal merit, end quote. Well, I'm just going to take a wild guess here and think that Ken Paxton is not bringing a suit full of inaccuracies that lacks legal merit. Just a guess. The Google spokesperson called state's characterization of the Facebook arrangement inaccurate, saying, quote, we sign hundreds of agreements every year that don't require CEO approval, and this was no different. Oh, well, uh, okay. The spokesperson added that the agreement was publicized at the time, linking to a Facebook blog post from 2018 naming Google as one of its new bidding technology partners. Shares of Meta were up more than 1% mid-afternoon on Friday, while Google parent Alphabet rose nearly 1%. The agreement, according to the Google spokesperson, simply allows the Facebook advertising network and advertisers it represents, quote, to participate in open bidding, just like over 25 other partners do. That helps increase demand for publisher ad space and helps publishers earn more revenue, as we explain here, end quote. A Meta spokesperson said Friday in a statement that its non-exclusive bidding agreement with Google and the similar agreements we have with other bidding platforms have helped to increase competition for ad placements. These business relationships enable Meta to deliver more value to advertisers while fairly compensating publishers, resulting in better outcomes for all. And for anyone with any background in the manipulation that these platforms engage in, all of their explanations for this should ring hollow. And I am very interested to see where this case goes. The Wall Street Journal also put out a very interesting piece on the big tech companies this weekend, and it's a totally different angle. This is Christopher Mims on Saturday morning. Google, Amazon, Meta and Microsoft weave a fiber optic network of power. To say that big tech controls the Internet might seem like an exaggeration. Increasingly, in at least one sense, it's literally true. The Internet can seem intangible, a post-physical environment where things like viral posts, virtual goods and metaverse concerts just sort of happen. But creating that illusion requires a truly gargantuan and quickly growing web of physical connections. 
fiber optic cable, which carries 95% of the world's international internet traffic, links up pretty much all of the world's data centers, those vast server warehouses where the computing happens that transforms all those ones and zeros into our experience of the internet. Where those fiber optic connections link up countries across oceans, they consist almost entirely of cables running underwater, some 1.3 million kilometers or more than 800,000 miles of bundled glass threads that make up the actual physical international internet. And until recently, the overwhelming majority of the undersea fiber optic cable being installed was controlled and used by telecommunications companies and governments. Today, that's no longer the case. In less than a decade, four tech giants, Microsoft, Google parent Alphabet, Meta, formerly Facebook, and Amazon, have become by far the dominant users of undersea cable capacity. Before 2012, the share of the world's undersea fiber optic capacity being used by those companies was less than 10%. Today, that figure is about 66%. And these four are just getting started, say analysts, submarine cable engineers, and the companies themselves. In the next three years, they are on track to become the primary financiers and owners of the web of undersea internet cables, connecting the richest and most bandwidth-hungry countries on the shores of both the Atlantic and the Pacific according to subsea cable analysis firm Telegeography. By 2024, the four are projected to collectively have an ownership stake in more than 30 long-distance undersea cables, each up to thousands of miles long, connecting every continent on the globe, save Antarctica. In 2010, these companies had an ownership stake in only one such cable, the Unity Cable, partly owned by Google, connecting Japan and the U.S., Traditional telecom companies have responded with suspicion and even hostility to tech companies' increasingly rapacious demand for the world's bandwidth. Industry analysts have raised concerns about whether we want the world's most powerful providers of internet services and marketplaces to also own the infrastructure on which they are all delivered. This concern is understandable. Imagine if Amazon owned the roads on which it delivers packages. But the involvement of these companies in the cable laying industry also has driven down the cost of transmitting data across oceans for everyone, even their competitors, and helped the world increase capacity to transmit data internationally by 41% in 2020 alone, according to Telegeography's annual report on submarine cable infrastructure. And this article is actually very long, so I'm not going to read the entire thing. But I found those last two paragraphs particularly interesting. The Writer acknowledges that there is an inherent danger in allowing these big tech companies who track us and control what we read and see and think to some degree, or I shouldn't say we, I should say people who are still using all of these platforms. I personally use zero of them, at least in terms of their core services. I understand that Amazon Web Services controls like half the internet. And I understand that Google is deeply embedded in lots of things, but even pulling back from the core services is helpful. But in the second paragraph, they immediately switch it back around and say, Hey, well, you know, there's an upside to this monopolistic control. And that's that things are a little bit cheaper for now. And of course, that's how things go when companies like this are trying to consume an even larger portion of the market. They will undercut competitors and they will give the illusion of benefiting consumers until they have taken over the entire market. And at that point, they are able to escalate their pricing or 
do things like gain more control over their users' data or force compliance by their users in order to maintain the privilege of using their very special platforms. Now, changing subjects once again without a segue, this is an absolutely stunning piece of propaganda from NPR. The author is a man named Hansi Lo Wang. And this is from Saturday. Trump officials interfered with the 2020 census beyond cutting it short. Email shows. Former President Donald Trump's administration alarmed career civil servants at the Census Bureau by not only ending the 2020 national headcount early, but also pressuring them to alter plans for protecting people's privacy and producing accurate data, a newly released email shows. And I would note that protecting people's privacy and producing accurate data is also the excuse that they have used to go after Groups who are doing canvassing after the 2020 elections to find all of the many improprieties and illegalities that happened in their states. Trump's political appointees at the Commerce Department, which oversees the bureau, demonstrated an unusually high level of, quote, engagement in technical matters, which is unprecedented relative to the previous censuses. According to a September 2020 email that Ron Jarman, the bureau's deputy director, sent to two other top civil servants at the time, the administration was faced with the reality that if Trump lost the November election, he could also lose a chance to change the census numbers used to redistribute political representation. The window of opportunity was closing for his administration to attempt to radically reshape the futures of the U.S. House of Representatives and the Electoral College. Despite the 14th Amendment's requirement to include, quote, the whole number of persons in each state, end quote, Trump wanted to exclude unauthorized immigrants from the census counts used to reallocate each state's share of congressional seats and electoral votes. And why would he want to do that? Isn't it amazing that we find ourselves in a situation where we have very serious legacy media platforms coming out and saying that illegal immigrants living in different states should, in fact, be included in census counts and used to draw congressional maps. That should be stunning to every American who's not already clued into this, which is a lot of Americans. While the former president's unprecedented push did not reach its ultimate goal, it wreaked havoc at the federal government's largest statistical agency, which was also contending with the coronavirus pandemic upending most of its plans for the once a decade tally. The delays stemming from COVID-19 forced the Bureau to conclude that it could no longer meet the legal reporting deadline for the first set of results and needed more time. Oh, the pandemic did it. It wasn't that they wanted to delay hoping for the exact situation this writer just described that Trump would be leaving office. It's that the pandemic delayed it. The administration's last minute decision to cut the counting short sparked public outcries. Oh, no, including a federal lawsuit that reached the Supreme Court. What happened with that lawsuit, by the way? It's strange he doesn't tell us right here. 
But its interference in other areas related to the 2020 census largely flew under most radars. The newly released email, first reported by the New York Times and obtained by the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University Law School through an ongoing public records lawsuit, details the wide scope of its attempts to buck the Bureau's experts and tamper with the count. You got that? If you are the president of the United States, you are not allowed to mess with anything in the census bureaucracy. They have their program. They do what they do. And you're just the president. You got to understand that the bureaucracy is what's important to hold on to. Don't you remember that huge part of the Constitution that says you cannot disobey bureaucrats? Oh, that's not there yet. That's just there in the uh, bizarro world that Joe Biden is attempting to create right now. Got it. According to the document, the agency's career civil servants saw when to end counting as, quote, a policy decision that political leadership should make. But the methodologies and procedures for filling in data gaps, reviewing the counts for errors and protecting the confidentiality of people's information should strictly stay in the lane of civil servants at, quote, an independent statistical agency, end quote, the email says. Trump officials, including Wilbur Ross, who served as Commerce Secretary, however, expressed interest in many technical areas, including exactly how the Bureau could produce a state-by-state count of unauthorized immigrants and citizenship data that could have politically benefited Republicans when voting districts are redrawn. And by that, of course, again, he means that Republicans did not want illegal immigrants counted when that number would then be used to draw congressional maps. Sorry, illegal immigrants, but there's no right or underlying logic to why California should get more congressional representatives and more electoral votes just because it has millions and millions of illegal immigrants there. And if all of that sounds crazy and conspiratorial, I would guide your eyes to the effort in New York City to allow illegal immigrants to vote in city elections. You think that's not going to expand to the rest of the country? Of course, that's where it's going. The email suggests that the Bureau's civil servants were planning to discuss their concerns with Ross through the end of 2020. The Bureau's public information office did not immediately respond to NPR's questions about whether those discussions took place. Other internal government documents the Brennan Center released Saturday show that bureau officials were wary of carrying out Trump's July 2020 presidential memorandum. Oh, isn't that interesting? The bureau can just decide for itself not to carry out the president's orders, even though it is an executive branch operation. Before President Biden reversed the directive last year. It called for information that would allow the president to leave out the numbers of immigrants living in the U.S. without authorization from the congressional apportionment count. According to an August 2020 email by Jarman, the bureau's highest ranking civil servant, the agency had received months before the memorandum asks for the information related to a federal lawsuit focused on the same topic. Like Trump, the challengers in the lawsuit, the state of Alabama and Republican Mo Brooks, wanted undocumented immigrants excluded from the numbers used to reallocate House seats and electoral votes. The Bureau, however, was, quote, consistently pessimistic, end quote, on the feasibility of, quote, removing undocks from the apportionment count, end quote. 
Jarman warned in the email to two Trump appointees, then director Stephen Dillingham, who ultimately resigned following whistleblower complaints, and Nathan Cogley, who served in the newly created controversial role of deputy director for policy. Still, civil servants attempted to be transparent about how they tried to create the data ordered by the former administration. Oh, they tried to be transparent. And it's amazing how they always call them civil servants. That is a protective term for government bureaucrat employees. Okay, and I'm not insulting people who work for the government in some blanket way. But we also, at the same time, don't have to assume that they are all good, loyal, faithful civil servants who just want to do their job according to the Constitution or any sort of principled morality. No such notice appeared in the federal government's official journal of record. There are concerns of future interference with the census. In response to the newly disclosed documents, Arturo Vargas, a longtime census advocate and CEO of the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials Educational Fund, said in a statement that the efforts of the Bureau's career professionals to resist Trump officials pressure and, quote, protect the integrity of census operations were nothing short of heroic, end quote. On Tuesday, the Biden administration's Scientific Integrity Task Force, which includes Jarman, issued a report warning that the Bureau and other federal statistical agencies, quote, must protect against interference in their efforts to create and release data that provide a set of common facts to inform policymakers, researchers and the public, end quote. The report presented the Trump administration's decision to end 2020 census counting early as a case study, noting that the Bureau's internal watchdog, The Commerce Department Inspector General's office concluded that the rushed schedule put the quality of the results at risk. To date, the report added, no individuals have been held accountable for these allegations. So what you can see in this article is extraordinary anti-Trump bias from an elite communist, honestly, publication that is determined to present resistance to the president's authority in these matters in favor of the deeply embedded career bureaucracy as a good thing, even when the subject is allowing the number of illegal immigrants in states to dictate how many representatives those states get and how many electoral votes they get in presidential elections. And it's not hard to see how this becomes an obvious incentive for states to allow more illegal immigrants into their borders. They are creating an actual important political advantage by getting more illegal immigrants into their states. And of course, what do we see in 2021? Over 2 million illegal immigrants. And people actually estimate in terms of the Uh, gotaways that it could be two and a half million or even closer to three million illegal immigrants that is approaching one percent of our country's total population how much difference can three million votes make when it is properly targeted around the country to influence certain elections and certain outcomes that is exactly what we see happening and that's without mentioning the fact that The slave trade that's happening at the southern border right now, and that is what it is. People are coming here from poor countries. They are of 
ethnic minorities, and they are being intentionally moved here so that they can be exploited for their labor and their political value. That is absolutely a slave trade. And beyond that, there is human trafficking, child trafficking, the trafficking of women for sex, drug trafficking, and the trafficking of terrorists into our country and criminals into our country. All of that is happening in the Biden slave trade at the southern border right now. And we are supposed to imagine that Trump is the bad guy. Trump was trying to do something untoward to gain himself a political advantage. He was upset about the way they've always done it. And so he tried to change it. But in that, they are admitting that that is the way they've always done it. The census, I think we are going to find, is among the primary sources of the corruption we see and the election fraud we see. For probably two decades, we've been told that there are 11 million or 12 million or 13 million undocumented immigrants in the United States. But estimates actually have it a lot higher, over 30 million. And we just brought in another three million. How is our population growing so rapidly when Americans keep being told that we are having fewer and fewer children, but our population continues to expand and it expands in the blue states where they continue to amass more and more political power, the power to redraw their districts, the power to send more members of Congress to the federal government and the power to have more electoral votes in presidential elections. And the Brennan Center is just about as corrupt and leftist an organization as you could possibly find. So one wonders, why is this information coming out right now? And so I want to share this with you from the Brennan Center. Voting Laws Roundup, December 2021. Okay, this was published on December 21st of last year, but they just updated it last week on the 12th. In 2021, the state legislative push to restrict access to voting was not only aggressive, it was also successful. Between January 1st and December 7th, at least 19 states passed 34 laws restricting access to voting. As we've gone over many, many times, those laws do not restrict access to anyone. They just change the rules away from how the Democrat Communist Party at the behest of the global communist agenda have been structuring elections. That's what they're mad at. They have not restricted access to anyone for voting. Everyone has access to voting. More than 440 bills with provisions that restrict voting access have been introduced in 49 states in the 2021 legislative sessions. These numbers are extraordinary. State legislatures enacted far more restrictive voting laws in 2021 than in any year since the Brennan Center began tracking voting legislation in 2011. More than a third of all restrictive voting laws enacted since then were passed this year. And in a new trend this year, legislators introduced bills to allow partisan actors to interfere with the election processes or even reject election results entirely. In fact, When they say partisan actors, they mean the representatives of the people. Okay, the Brennan Center is taking the representatives of the people and putting them in opposition to centralized bureaucratic committees that they want to erect and prop up so that those committees can make the decisions instead of the representatives of the people.
Because when committees make the decisions, well, then there's no one to hold accountable. They were all political appointments, which makes them nonpartisan. You see, don't you understand how it works? It's just another brilliant language trick. And they're also ignoring the fact that it is in the state constitutions and in our constitution that these election results actually can be investigated and verified by the representatives of the people or they can be rejected by the people's representatives when there is overwhelming evidence of fraud, as there was in the 2020 election, which is why some people, some very brave people actually attempted to do that. And here we have another very beautifully Orwellian attempt at skewing the reality, the reality being that Americans actually want to have elections with integrity. Unfortunately, the momentum around this legislation continues. Isn't that weird that the momentum could continue around efforts that Americans don't actually want? How is it that momentum keeps growing in opposition to what the people want? Amazing, isn't it? So far, at least 13 bills restricting access to voting have been pre-filed for the 2022 legislative session in four states. In addition, at least 152 restrictive voting bills in 18 states will carry over from 2021. These early indicators, coupled with the ongoing mobilization around the big lie, the same false rhetoric about voter fraud that drove this year's unprecedented wave of vote suppression bills, suggest that efforts to restrict and undermine the vote will continue to be a serious threat in 2022. There are solutions to this alarming and unprecedented attack on our democracy. Congress has the power to take bold action now to protect American voters from the kinds of restrictions enacted this year and the looming threats to voters and elections that may be imposed in 2022 and beyond. Two bills that would head off many of the assaults on free and fair elections have passed the House of Representatives and are awaiting Senate votes. The Freedom to Vote Act is a broad package of voting, redistricting, election security, and campaign finance reforms that would ensure minimum national standards for voting access for every American. It would also prevent partisans from sabotaging election results. And again, they are talking about states' abilities to deal with the obvious and overwhelming evidence of fraud in their states. They just have the Secretary of State certify it or the governor and that's it no one else can question it ever that is what they want to put into law imagine katie hobbs being like yep the election was good the election that i oversaw that was rife with fraud was all good just like she did and then the state of arizona cannot audit their election and they cannot find all the fraud before the electors go to congress they just have to accept whatever Katie Hobbs says. And the proponents of this idea would say, well, you know, if you don't like the job that Katie Hobbs did, you can just vote her out of office. Oh, yeah, sure. I'll vote her out of office in the election that she gets to set the rules for and then decide whether or not there was fraud in the election. What a great plan. Thank you, Brennan Center. Thank you, George Soros. Thank you, Democrat Communist Party. And thank you, Rhino Republicans, for your participation. This has made everything just perfect. 
The John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act would prevent discriminatory practices and rules in voting from being implemented in states and localities where discrimination is persistent and pervasive, protecting access to the vote for all eligible voters, regardless of race, color or membership in language minority groups. And it would restore voters ability to challenge discriminatory laws nationwide. Understand they want to consolidate power in a centralized bureaucracy to fix a problem that does not exist, a problem they have made up, a problem that they are using for cover so that they don't actually have to support any of these initiatives on the merits. They just say everything is racism and you are forced to agree. And this is long. You can read it yourself. I'm going to jump down a little bit to the section called partisan election reviews. A disturbing legislative trend from 2021 is the launching of illegitimate partisan reviews of election results in a number of key states. Specifically, partisan state legislators have empowered other partisan actors who are not part of the election administration process to access and review ballots and other materials from the 2020 elections. And it should say right there as allowed by law. But it doesn't, of course, because they have to give their propagandistic spin. As the Brennan Center has documented elsewhere, these reviews have typically been designed to set the stage for future efforts to suppress votes and subvert election outcomes. Obviously nonsense. In 2021, questionable and politically motivated reviews of the 2020 election results occurred or are ongoing in six states, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Wisconsin. Now, legislators in five states, Florida, Missouri, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Tennessee, have pre-filed seven bills for 2022 to initiate or allow similar partisan reviews of election results. Five of these bills would initiate reviews of the 2020 election, and two of them would set up processes for partisan reviews of future elections. Good. Isn't it amazing that they are always so scared of these reviews? They can call them partisan all they want. Why don't they allow the reviews to go forward and then they can go ahead and pick the reviews apart and show us how they're actually wrong? But they won't do that. Remember, after the Arizona audit, what was the narrative they tried to go with? Not that there was obvious proof of deletions of files, for instance, outside the law. And we have just gotten a portion of what they have found in Arizona, but hundreds of thousands of files that were supposed to be kept for 22 months, just straight up deleted. Members of the uh, Arizona Board of Elections went to the Congress and testified to that. That is absolutely illegal. They testified to it before Congress, and we are still told by the media, by the central narrative, by places like the Brennan Center, that what actually happened in the Arizona audit was that they did a recount. And in the recount, they found that Joe Biden won by more than they had even expected. But they didn't mention that the recount included fraudulent votes in with the legal ones and that all of the votes had been handled illegally and that chain of custody had been broken and that there were a million other problems with them. They just skipped over all that and said, oh, it turns out Joe Biden won by more. And they give us the key states to watch. Below our key states to monitor in 2022, these states have already shown some of the warning signs discussed above. Arizona legislatures passed three restrictive voting bills this year, and they have pre-filed at least one bill that would restrict voting access by imposing stricter identification requirements. Oh, no. Something that 82 percent 
of black Americans support voter ID, legitimate legal voter ID. It should be had by every single person who attempts to cast a ballot in American elections, but they don't want that. And why don't they want it? Because it makes it hard to harvest other people's votes and then present them as real votes. It makes it harder for illegal immigrants to vote. It makes it harder for dead people and underage people to vote. And all of those things happen with regularity. It's not a small problem. It's not a rare occurrence. It happens everywhere, all the time, in every election. And they try to hide it because they don't care. They don't care about one person, one vote. They don't care about fair legal elections in America. They care about entrenching power for the global communist agenda. And honestly, nothing could be more obvious with all of this. Additionally, state legislators introduced three bills in 2021 that would have directly empowered partisan officials to reject or overturn election results. And I agree, anything that takes away Katie Hobbs power is an excellent thing. The state also conducted an infamous partisan election review this year when it contracted a third party to audit Maricopa County's 2020 election results. Despite no evidence of fraud, the review has drummed up false rhetoric around voter fraud and galvanized public officials to push for restrictive voting legislation. Well, they're also going to push for decertification. And the media was correct when they noted, as Steve Bannon said, That Donald Trump's speech in Arizona the other day was the kickoff for the decertification campaign. Georgia passed SB 202, a restrictive omnibus law that criminalizes passing out water to voters waiting in line. And again, we talked about this Thursday or Friday. That is not what it does at all. It makes it so that NGOs and Democrat communist organizations are not allowed to go around and hand out stuff to voters waiting in line to vote and trying to influence their vote, which they do. It doesn't restrict putting out containers with water bottles available to the public. It doesn't rule out water fountains. It doesn't rule out people bringing their own water or food that they can consume while in line. And it doesn't rule out people bringing them stuff if it's outside of 150 feet of the entrance to the polling place. Truthfully, it should be like a quarter mile, but whatever. I mean, when I was walking to cast my vote in Los Angeles in 2020, Nithya Raman and some other complete communist candidates had little booths outside of the polling place so that they could try to convince people to vote for their candidate. That's electioneering. It shouldn't be allowed. The law also politicizes the state's board of elections and grants the board new powers to remove professional election officials and seize control of election administration in specific jurisdictions, which could lead to partisan influence in the election certification process. You got that? They want to make sure that whoever they put in to the bureaucracy cannot be removed by the representatives of the people. Moreover, partisan actors sought to review the election results in Fulton County because of false allegations of fraud, despite the fact that state election officials conducted a statutory audit that led to a full hand count along with two machine counts. And there are still rampant problems in Georgia, nonetheless, and more of them are coming out each day. Again, 
This stuff is crazy. They are just repeating the slogans. They are saying the things we all know. Oh, they've already reviewed it a couple of times. Don't worry. Georgia has high profile elections for secretary of state and governor in 2022. One candidate for secretary of state has repeated false fraud claims and voted not to certify the results of the 2020 presidential election, while two candidates for governor have explicitly stated that they would not have certified the results of the 2020 election had they been in office at the time. And any honest moral person who actually took a look at the obvious and overwhelming evidence of election fraud in Georgia in the 2020 election would and should say the same thing. It just happens to be inconvenient for communist organizations like the Brennan Center for Justice. Michigan's legislature passed, but the governor vetoed three restrictive voting bills. 15 restrictive bills are carrying over into the 2022 legislative session, and the state has a gubernatorial race next year. And that would be Gretchen Whitmer, Democrat communist, one of the leaders of what is currently the Democrat communist movement in America. Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan is one of the governors who put sick people into nursing homes. But don't worry, she's making sure that the representatives of the people cannot even attempt to reform Michigan's election laws. That's just how heroic she is. Additionally, partisan actors have turned to a ballot initiative to pass restrictive measures to bypass both the governor and the people. Due to a quirk of the Michigan Constitution, if a ballot initiative garners the required number of signatures of support, the legislature gets a chance to pass it in its own right. This means the majority of Michigan voters never get an opportunity to vote on the initiative, and the governor has no power to veto such an initiative if the legislature passes it. Anti-voting rights activists are currently organizing a restrictive ballot initiative that would, among other things, eliminate the ability for voters who lack a voter identification to cast a regular ballot. Good. Almost the entirety of the country wants that. The very small percent, growing ever smaller by the day, of extremist Democrat communists do not want voter ID. Everyone else does. It would also require voters to put the last four digits of their social security number on their voter registration. What is the problem with that? Require voters to provide their driver's license number, state ID card number, or the last four digits of their social security number on absentee ballot applications. Again, what is the problem with that? It should be a problem for me to write my driver's license number on a state document that is being sent to the state. They already have that information. The point is whether or not I have that information. And an even better point is to ensure that that information is attached to a real person. Although half these states are giving driver's licenses to illegal immigrants so that they have that sort of information and can vote. Because, of course, they also get to register you to vote when you get your driver's license. It would prohibit either the Secretary of State or local election officials from affirmatively sending absentee ballot application forms to voters. Well, good. Why should someone be sent an absentee ballot application form when they can simply just request one and then it gets sent to them? The number of signatures required to give the green light for the Michigan legislature to roll back the voting rights of millions of Michiganders, 
unchecked by the governor or voters is fewer than the actual number of votes separating the two major candidates in the state's last gubernatorial election. Oh, that's interesting that they're comparing those numbers, isn't it? In one Michigan county, a partisan group was given access to voting machines to review the 2020 election results. Despite the fact that Michigan has a robust, accurate, risk-limiting audit system already in place, risk-limiting audits are not actual audits. And lawmakers introduced a bill that would have allowed a member of a county board of canvassers to rescind their vote to certify the results of an election, which is exactly what President Trump sought in Wayne County after the 2020 election. And let's remember the night that the county board of canvassers in Wayne County in Michigan met in 2020, they did so by Zoom and then were harassed into their decision. They initially were not going to certify. Then I believe it was either Jocelyn Benson or Dana Nessel made a promise to them about being able to review things. If they certified, they gave their certification and then that promise was rescinded. And so Trump had asked them to rescind their vote of approval. And then that wasn't allowed. So they want to be able to do that because everyone with eyes could see that those two members of the board of canvassers were harassed into a decision that they did not want to make because they had clear objections to the results in Wayne County because more people cast votes than were eligible to vote. Pennsylvania's legislature passed one wide ranging restrictive bill this year, which the governor vetoed. 30 restrictive bills are carrying over into the 2022 legislative session. The state also has a gubernatorial race next year. And they're talking about this year, right? This was originally written uh, in December 2021, and they have not updated all of it, apparently. Four of the restrictive carryover bills are constitutional amendment proposals that would enable state legislators to get restrictive voting laws on the books without the governor's review. These proposals would need majority approval by the 2021-2022 and 2022-2023 state legislators and then majority approval from voters. And they'll be able to achieve all of those, which is why they must be opposed by the Brennan Center. Further, officials in one rural Pennsylvania county agreed to a questionable partisan review of their 2020 election results by a private security firm with no previous experience auditing elections and funded by Sidney Powell, a Trump affiliated attorney who pursued unsuccessful post-election lawsuits based on debunked conspiracy theories. A Pennsylvania state senator who was present at the at Capitol Hill during the January 6th insurrection has since used the results of this questionable review to push for further restrictive voting legislation. And Pennsylvania's Supreme Court just further delayed their audit, but it still is coming. Texas passed SB1 this year, one of the harshest restrictive voting bills in the country. The law makes it harder for voters with disabilities and language access barriers to obtain assistance. No, it doesn't. Constrains election workers' ability to stop harassment by poll watchers ridiculous and bans 24 hour and drive through voting among other measures really 24 hour drive through voting that's just something we should allow everywhere the brennan center for justice thinks that that is necessary for racism we must solve racism you can't solve racism without giving people 24 hour drive-in voting access honestly man honestly these people are simultaneously so obvious, so stupid, so incompetent, and so unbelievably corrupt. 
I cannot believe that Democrats can read this nonsense and not be like, what are they talking about? Texas legislators also introduced legislation this year that would have provided for the overturning of election results and that explicitly called for third party forensic reviews of the election of the election results. Isn't that supposed to be a good thing? Aren't we supposed to be able to review results and make sure they're right? But no, the Brennan Center doesn't want that. They want to federalize and centralize elections so that no one can review when there are problems. It will just be a small bureaucracy in Washington, just as corrupt as the Congress and the Senate and everyone in and around the fake administration, and they'll decide how our elections should go forever. Even without authorizing legislation, the Secretary of State's office launched an unnecessary audit into the 2020 election in four Texas counties. You got that? It's unnecessary. Don't you know? Why are they wasting their time? Thank goodness we have the Brennan Center here to advocate for laws, making sure that they will never do anything unnecessary. Even though routine audits had already occurred, documents published by the Secretary of State's office would allow for a manual count of votes in those counties as well as an examination of other election records and voter lists. Wisconsin's legislature passed two restrictive voting bills this year, which the governor vetoed. 13 restrictive bills are carrying over into the 2022 legislative session, and the state has a gubernatorial race next year, this year. Wisconsin has also initiated an investigation into the 2020 election results, and they put investigation in quotes as if it's not real. The effort lacks transparency. No, it doesn't. Fairness and credibility. No, no. And is being staffed by a well-known partisan operative with a prior history of spreading false claims of election fraud. They are talking about former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman, who has not had a prior history of spreading false claims about election fraud. He goes in front of the state assembly and tells the truth about what he is finding and the people who are attempting to cover up what they have done, mostly in league with Mark Zuckerberg and the Center for Tech and Civic Life. That is what he is saying. Those are the claims he is making. There was clear and obvious election fraud in Wisconsin and Wisconsin courts have already deemed that random voters in Wisconsin did not have the right to claim indefinitely confined status in regard to the coronavirus so that they could use a mail-in absentee ballot without submitting ID. That is what they did. It was an obvious end around to a clear black letter law. That's what the courts decided. There could have been 150,000 to 200,000 ballots with that indefinitely confined notation that are all illegal in a state decided by 21,000. And that was known and decided before Governor Tony Evers, the communist from Wisconsin, sent false electors to the Congress for January 6th. And this goes on and on. But if you want to think about what might be happening behind the scenes, you can see that the effort to prop up centralized bureaucrats at the census and to obscure the truth about what is actually happening in state legislatures as they do here. This is the Brennan Center making a concerted effort 
to protect these different elements of the election rigging scheme that we should simply call George Soros's election apparatus or in the terms of the uniparty, our democracy. And these elements of the system are becoming exposed with this year that we have lived under an illegitimate regime. This is the purpose of this time is to expose all the places these problems grow out of. It is not just as simple as getting all the statistical proof and then just showing it to America and then bringing in the military in case people don't believe it enough. The country has to know the truth about all of this stuff. They have to know that their representation is being skewed by the presence of illegal immigrants in states around the country. They have to know that the Uniparty and the global communist system is there to support that effort against the will and the good of the American people. And they have to understand that these organizations like the Brennan Center for Justice are trying to propagandize Americans into believing that all of these election problems that they are naming right now are just efforts to keep black people from voting. How can anyone, even the child brains, be so ignorant as to believe all of this? They will always show you by what they say they are for. They will always show you what they are actually doing. And all you have to do from that point is do some research and determine their motivations. And you will see that they always lead back to the same exact things. Just like the tech companies, they want centralized, monopolistic control of everything, including you. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that. 
at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. It's high noon! In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'mYourModerator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon, down on the range. It's hell!